I'm sitting in the channel between Bluff Island and Brabant Island on my first day of Antarctic operations for summer 2019-2020. Meanwhile, the bear made a stop in Napier, New Zealand. Another big Pacific storm forcing the use of the last of the coal taken aboard in Tahiti, delaying arrival in Wellington until the 6th of January. Taking on the third Citron half-track and a large volume of lumber in the New Zealand capital, the bear started south on the 19th of January, rolling wildly in the beam sea, but making good time in the absence of pack ice, the crew laughing with self-satisfaction at their showing up the headlines on the New Zealand newspapers they carried, many prophesying their doom. Aboard the Rupert, drawing nearer their destination, the Little America veterans began picking out familiar features of the landscape, or fixtures left behind in 1930. Victor Steger spied with dismay the dearth of ice in Floyd Bennett Bay. In 1930, the apparently fast ice supported 50 tonnes of unshipped cargo as the city of New York departed, Steger's machinery and tools among the materials the ship couldn't find space for. The ship's launch went out to a point on the barrier shore just three miles north of Little America, carrying first a landing party including Bird and his entourage, and then dog teams and drivers. Finn Ronnie got yelled at by almost everyone present when he preceded Admiral Bird onto the ice, and an inadvertent replication of Alton Parker's The Marines Are Always First to Land episode of the previous expedition. Bedlam ensued as the three-month ship-crazed dogs delighted in apparent terra firma, the most lively breaking free of their harnesses and tear-arsing around in a state of uncatchable high-speed rapture, and even the least spirited at least turning over their sledges as they delighted in the opportunity to roll on and eat the snow. One of Finn Ronnie's first attempts at driving a team in Antarctica came aglay when another team crossed lines with his own. Savage fighting broke out the drivers taking some time to break up the melee. Ronnie and Innes Taylor spent several hours bandaging badly gashed dogs, which promptly tore the dressings off their open wounds because dog. Seven dogs of the original 153 didn't arrive at the ice, two more having died during the voyaging between New Zealand and the Bay of Wales. Bird, Peterson, Haynes and Noville trekked south to stand between the tops of the radio masts around the very lip of the administration building's chimney and ventilators, the only part of the building still showing above the snow. Deposition hadn't erased Little America, but a great deal of spade work lay ahead in making their prior habitations visible, let alone habitable again. Bill Haynes sagged when Bird handed him the implement, and Bird noted, It may be a classic phrase that the smell of powder exhilarates the old warhorses, but I've never seen a veteran explorer show anything but the deepest melancholia at the sight of a snow shovel. Three feet down, Haynes encountered the roof of the balloon hut, broke through it and disappeared into the subterranean gloom. Bird and co followed, finding familiar scenes distorted by crystalline frost, equipment and meals discarded in a final rush to join the city of New York, and the weight of accumulated snow bending the ceiling beams downward. Finn Ronnie found his father's bunk and his own name written neatly on the wood. Bird couldn't recall seeing it before and figured Martin Ronnie must have written it immediately prior to departure. Finn felt his father somehow knew his son would follow in his footsteps. 
While standing in the mess, surveying the canned goods left behind, and shortly to form the base layer beneath the large cans of food coming ashore, the phone rang and startled the bejeevas out of everyone. Was someone left behind? Noville asked. Peterson was working a set in another part of the complex and enjoyed a good laugh at the expense of the people he gave a jump scare to. Sowen, Sowen, Tara? Tara, go ahead. Sitting to Afro with Angelo plus four and Carolyn plus four. Peterson flicked a light switch and the lights came on. Faint, but demonstrating sound application of the electrician's art in establishing Little America's modern amenities. Someone, we'll say Peterson because of the established lion pride killing levels of curiosity, cranked the gramophone and the bells of St Mary's began playing and the former residents experienced a wave of nostalgia and mild annoyance at the tune, this being Blackburn's one-hit playlist of the long dark. Poulter took charge of the resurrection of Little America while Bird returned to the Rupert to oversee its mooring and to kick off unloading operations. The ship lay only three miles from the base, but Balkan's report of the pressure ice barring access held true. Finn Ronnie and Quinn Blackburn headed off on skis to scout a path through the maze while the crew of the Rupert made ready to lower the aircraft onto the barrier edge. Alert to the problems this same ice caused Ellsworth and Wilkins, getting the William Horlick prepped for flight to a safer footing ran fast, and this may explain why no one attached the preventer wires that hold the skis parallel to the fuselage while in flight. June and Bolan, with Hutchison testing the radio sets, got the Condor in the air, and immediately the big skis overcame the rubbery tension of their bungee cord suspension lines and pivoted forward over their pedestal mounts, adding their cross-sectional drag to an already drag-riddled airframe and all but completely nixing the possibility of a safe landing. The downward pointing skis would catch on the surface and immediately lever the airframe cockpit first into the ice. June pulled off a remarkable piece of flying, bringing the Condor down at just above the stalling speed, allowing the tail to touch first and thus slowing the aircraft just enough by that friction that the bungee cords pulled the skis forward past the point they didn't catch on the surface as the weight of the William Horlick came on them. June saved Bird's hopes for some exploratory plaudits and his own life and those of his companions, and thereby saved Bird's death-free track record by pulling a slim chance feat of aviation prowess out of his arse after having generated the dangerous situation by not pre-flighting his steed. Aviation safety journals feature almost as many accidents caused by pilots not bothering to get shit right while on the ground and operating at zero knots airspeed as they do tales of errors of judgement while in the air and travelling at speed. Bird, as always seeking to accentuate the positive, heaped praise on June for landing the hobbled condor safely and doesn't mention that the situation only arose because June fucked up the easy step of looking over his aircraft, particularly the parts recently modified, while it wasn't posing him all the health risks incumbent on a large and heavy gasoline container moving at speed and height. Ronnie and Blackburn returned to report large cracks crisscrossing what bay ice remained and rafters of pressure ice 30 feet high. To get the 500 tonnes of stores to Little America from the bay ice required a 40 mile round trip around these obstacles. Surveying the barrier edge as an alternative to the bay ice, Bird was just pointing out a site he thought looked promising to Bill Haynes when a quarter mile long stretch of the fascia gave away, throwing the ship around in the resulting wash. The Ruppet returned to the remnant bay ice and Ronnie went out scouting on fresh legs. 
third forming a plan to abandon Little America and establish a new base if a shortcut through the pressure didn't come to light. With the fuel situation aboard the ship, mandating a departure on the 5th of February at the very latest, the pressure to get ashore gave everyone the spurs. Damas took charge of the tractor contingent and Innes Taylor coordinated the 16 dog teams. The latter ferried stores from the ice edge to the waiting tractors, the former heavier transport units staying well clear of the ice edge to avoid causing further breakouts. Once loaded by dog teams, the tractors began carting their larger loads to a depot and possible base site named Pressure Camp. A day into the unloading, defective fuel lines caused two of the Citroen half-tracks to catch fire, one burning out its entire driving cab before fire grenades. Canisters of fire dousing chemicals you can lob into a conflagration brought the excitement to an end. Further denting the mechanical advantage, the two snowmobiles broke. Matt, go ahead. I'm at the hut at Damoy Point, and I've got the place to myself for a bit. That's nice. Further denting the mechanical advantage, the two Ford snowmobiles broke down, their gear cassettes cracking under the load due to the steel becoming brittle in the cold. The Fairchild Pilgrim went ashore and the Klee track towed it clear of the ice edge. The Fokker Universal received some wind-mediated dings while hanging from the derrick, but nothing the aviation contingent couldn't repair. The first few days of dog driving proved chaotic as pre-selected team assignments didn't all work as well as anticipated. The experienced drivers discouraged petting the dogs during the voyage, but the pleasure of canine company proved too beguiling for many among the expedition. The dogs responded to this illicit affection by enthusiastically departing from the trail whenever a favourite human came into view, and the frustrated dog drivers yelled themselves hoarse until the dogs found their working groove. Repairs to the burnt citrons ran non-stop, with at least one of the two machines out of action at any given time. A jury-rigged driving cab saw the worst burnt unit back in action, but new problems arose on the hour as the issues of operating the half-tracks at low temperatures each arose in their turn. Damas and his team raced up a steep learning curve, making modifications with each repair that eventually turned the Citrons into reliable, work-hardened stalwarts of the expedition. Ronnie found a path through the pressure ice lying between Pressure Camp and Little America. Far from flat and featuring several crevasse crossings, it offered the only option to get stores to Little America in a reasonable time and Bird established parties to set bridges comprising telegraph poles and hatch covers over the worst crevasses, and to level or widen the path as necessary or as possible. While two unladen dog teams made a test run through Ronnie's passage, Bird tasked Bolan with flying cargo to Little America aboard the Fairchild, carrying a tonne per flight, but taking off on the rough bay ice with a full load nearly shook the small airframe to pieces. Bird gave up on aviation assistance during the unloading after just a few flights. Cracks in the ice around Pressure Camp saw two further depots established, West Barrier Cache and East Barrier Cache acting as bulwarks against losing all the cargo should the ice begin breaking out. The double and treble handling involved in moving the depot material caused dismay among the expeditioners, 
already exhausting themselves in the effort to get their cargo clear of the ship. But on the 24th of January, a large breakout, which included some of the ice comprising pressure camp, and which left 45 of the ship's crew stranded ashore, and the ship adrift, and unable to find another mooring until the tide and currents moved the broken ice clear of the edge, validated the decision to reposition the depot material. Paul Seipel made the first cargo transit of Ronnie's path through the pressure ice, toting a ton of material on his sledge and covering the distance to Little America in five hours. Nice. Just another 500 such transits and it's all over by the cargo due to arrive at the end of the month aboard the Bear. The Rupert moored up once more to begin unloading radio gear, but the mooring only served for five hours as the increasingly weak bay ice let out another tranche. Rather than risking half-tracks or dog teams near the ship, the clear track stood off, drawing newly laden sledges to firmly footed ice using an endless line. Just shy of midnight on the 28th of January, McCormick made the first flight in his Kellett autogyro, kicking off a new chapter in Antarctic transport history that echoes with the loud thuppa 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 noise familiar to anyone who's ever heard a Bell UH-1 or its two-blade descendants on the wing. McCormick ended the first rotary wing flight in Antarctica by landing near Little America and parking up near the three fixed-wing aircraft. On the 30th of January, after an impressive 12-day run south, equalling that of the Eleanor Bowling, the bear steered into the Bay of Wales, guided by the inelegant maritime marker of 20 bales of hay drifting seaward on an ice floe. The bear walked alongside the ripper, one of the first articles unloaded being an as-yet unburnt and unbroken Citroen half-track, which quickly received the most pressing ice modifications before joining its less shiny siblings in the constant movement slowly dragging the expedition inland in the care of von der Waal, a Navy diver trying his hand at less hazardous work. As the bear emptied, the Rupert refilled her with 250 tonnes of urgently needed coal. Two silk-lined coffins came ashore, but Bird ordered them back aboard, figuring he didn't want to import such ominous omens onto his death-clean slate. Cook Carbone expressed disappointment, having already eyed one up as a potential draft-free bunk. The crevasse bridge through the pressure ridges acted as a bottleneck, with the machinery on one side and dog teams on the other, so June set about establishing a second, more substantial bridge to allow some citrons across and to ease the cargo logjam forming on the East Barrier Cache side. The first load dragged across by a citron included the large Kohler genset. Once installed in Little America, Dyer used this to send the first voice transmission out of Antarctica in brief test broadcasts to New York and Buenos Aires. At Little America itself, Poulter and his small team of archaeological rehabilitators dug out, set true, and reinforced those buildings buried by, and in some cases stove in by, the accumulated snow. They cleared out the detritus of the past occupancy and uncovered the caches of vittles and materials left in place, marking each with flags, demarking their boundaries and denoting their contents before snow once more obliterated their outlines. Newly arrived cargo pulled the distributed according to his methodical mode, and those two received their identifying vexillology. Tunnels narrowed by hoarfrost received a reaming, and four new bunks went into the accommodations to help accommodate the extra hands staying on that winter. 
the biologists, Perkins and Lindsay, hunted seals and penguins among the pressure ridges, trying to establish a larder of dog food for the winter. Inners Taylor setting an estimate of 700 seal carcasses as the number needed to see all paws through the winter months. That late in the austral summer, the Bay of Wales offered little local meat, 20 seals in a day marking the maximum catch that season. The pair took to covering as much ground as possible, killing seals as they went, then doubling back to collect their catch, trying to maximise the seals in hand at the expense of increasingly difficult butchering as the carcasses chilled down and froze. Increasingly concerned that the hunting party might not make quota, McCormick and June made a reconnaissance flight in the autogyro, and Perkins led a two-sledge party to the highest concentration of seals sighted from the air, carrying a week's worth of food. They killed almost 200 seals in that week, and depoted them in five meat caches for later collection by tractor. Another hundred killed nearer the moorings helped make up the numbers, but with the wildlife mostly following the departing margin of the loose pack, it was a close-run race to ensure the dogs stayed fed through the coming months. Finn Ronnie, taken aback by the berating he received for stepping ashore ahead of Bird, and chagrined at being the centre of the worst dogfight of the expedition, took some small satisfaction seeing the mail sacks, among the first items taken to Little America for immediate cancellation and return to the ship, disappearing under a snowdrift. He kept quiet about its location when the call went out to find the cache, and it only came to light three months later during alcohol prospecting, of which more anon. Many people found Bird's leadership not to their tastes, and Finn Ronnie's crook start on the ice with Bird presaged a long and bitter antagonism between the two men that would reach well into the future. Dr Shirley decided not to stay on for the winter. According to Bird, the decision hinged on the doctor's assessment of his own high blood pressure, though other accounts put it down to his heavy drinking denting his dedication to the expedition goals and the well-being of the people working towards those goals. Whichever version holds closest to true, the decision to risk sending him home wasn't taken lightly. Unless a ship managed to get another medico south in what remained of the summer, the largest overwintering party in Antarctic history would face the rigours of the long dark with first aid from hospital corpsman James Sterrett and a radio link as their only bulwarks against disease and disability. Bird sent a request for a New Zealand-based physician and awaited the wheels of bureaucracy to play out a result. Victor Steger's departure was less of a surprise. Chronic back trouble that plagued his previous time in Antarctica, only having grown worse in the interim. The departure of the Rupert on the 4th of February near ran to disaster when a bow line, frozen in place, didn't ease off when released from its dead man's stay. Wind swung the ship on the end of this fulcrum, and the Rupert would have crushed the bear against the ice if Ike Schlossbach didn't make quick work of the hawser with an axe. Commodore Gertsen managing to reverse the ship out of the situation with only minor grazing to the bear's hull. The Rippert sailed north under a skeleton crew, leaving maximum hands on the ice to continue the cargo slog. Radio messages to New Zealand found the Wyatt Earp in no shape to collect and deliver a doctor, Ellsworth having put the ship in for refit, her engine presently in pieces. The discovery too, in the region on the behalf of the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, lay in Auckland for a refit and almost ready to resume Antarctic operations. Commanding Officer Lieutenant Nelson applied for and received permission to take aboard a doctor and to transfer them to the Bear in mid-transit of the Ross Sea.
Bird's New Zealand representatives advertised for a physician and selected Dr. Lewis H. Potaka, and I apologise if that should actually be Louis, of the University of Otago, who chucked a posting to Salmoa to head south because he thought it might prove more interesting. Several authors cite Dr. Pataka as the first New Zealand Maori to reach Antarctica, and I'll take that at face value since I can't find out much about the Stuart Islanders who joined the Antarctic under Bull. The bear departed the Bay of Wales on the 6th of February, bird on board, for a survey to the northeast of the Bay of Wales, seeking to join dots and consolidate bird's discoveries on updated charts. A line of grounded icebergs running north and south near Cape Colbeck received attention from Roo's depth sounder, which revealed a sharply demarcated benthic ridge at 45 fathoms, possibly a submarine extension of the Alexandra Mountains of King Edward VII land. But little else of geographic interest came to light before the Discovery 2 radioed their readiness to sail south with the replacement doctor on the 14th of February. The bear returned to Little America to drop off Bird on the 15th of February before turning north to seek a rendezvous with the Discovery 2 and its replacement Medico. Immediately after Bird's departure aboard the bear, Corey spotted a sledge of booze to part one of the caches. Before he could alert Poulter to this breach of Bird's dry base mandate, June and his fellow alcohol enthusiasts got the sledge into Little America and secreted the cases of bottles in a remnant hut from the previous occupation. Poulter deducted Dr. Shirley as the origins of the supply and waited for the doctor's departure before acting on the infraction, in the hope that a further supply would not arrive for an even more surreptitious secretion. Better to wait for the source to fuck off than confiscate and hide the contraband, only to have it replaced. During Bird's absence aboard the Bear, Poulter oversaw the erection of the new mess hall, better able to seat the entire winter contingent at a single sitting, a laboratory, a meteor observatory, a dairy to house the cows, a radio shack, a ferrous-free magnetic measurements hut, and an analogue to Blubberheim in which Innes Taylor and Noville set up house. In Discovery, Bird writes about the new approach to leading his largely volunteer workforce he applied, describing it as letting a natural hierarchy develop and the devil take the hindmost. I think this was partly due to the problems he encountered in micromanaging his team outside the disciplined framework of naval operations, and partly to deflect any criticism levelled his way for abandoning his team for the survey to the northeast aboard the Bear, and the later, greater abandonment that I've yet to describe. Quote, Out of the clutter and chaos, out of the confusion of personalities and talents, out of the small vexations and jealousies, out of the blinding white nightmare of unloading, out of the brutal physical labour and hardships, something hard and fine and spirited, that rhythmical purpose which is the esprit de corps of a polar expedition had been crystallised. End quote. New quote. It was proof that the expedition was on an even keel, and knowing this, it was a lot easier for me a month hence to make the decision which would isolate me from the expedition for the duration of the winter night. End quote. Further, further quote. Had I not had this confidence in the common sense and integrity of the expedition, such a decision could never have been made. No leader would dare leave exposed to the weakness-searching pathology of the long winter night, an expedition which had not found itself. End quote. Ooh, foreshadowing. What's that all about? Ha <laughs> ha. I suspect a lot of listeners will already know, 
but I'm leaving this episode hanging on that cliff edge with a note that everything Bird wrote in that quote I just quoted amounts to, I didn't lead, and I didn't feel a need to justify ramping my failure to lead up a couple of orders of magnitude. Take care, and appreciate your coffee, and get off my lawn.